Attention, everyone. Welcome to No Picks After Dark. It's your boy Nick Burke, and you are now tuned in to the hottest podcast in the world with Aaron Dante, giving you the hottest interviews with the dopest people, sharing their experiences from your neighborhood all around to the world. Voted Best Baltimore Podcast by you, the listeners. Now, your host, Aaron Dante. Yo, Aaron, talk to him. Welcome to the No Picks After Dark Podcast, Baltimore City's and Baltimore County's number one podcast in Baltimore. And today, you know, we have all these amazing guests, you know, and we're starting off this year something brand new. We're doing a little comedy routine in the beginning. And without further ado, Mr. Ivan Martin, what's going on for the Ivan Minute? How you feeling? It's been going good, man. I'm going to just let you know it hasn't been going as good as I'm trying to make it sound. This is me trying to lie to you. It has been going bad. I have never, ever in my life wanted a flu shot so bad, ever, in my life. But now I'm like, give me a flu shot. I want a tuberculosis shot. I want a polio shot. I want a shot for SARS. I want a cold shot. I want a shot for stubbing my toe. I want a shot. Just give me a shot. Give me everything, man. It's so hard out here. We can't wait for the audiences to get back in line, man. I can't wait to get these tickets sold. But get your vaccine first. All right, I'm going to be talking to people like back in the day you used to have somebody be like, hey, girl, are you sure you safe? I'm going to be like, hey, girl, are you sure you got a shot? Because, <laughs> you know, like and they give you a little card. Now, I'm going to carry around my card the same way people used to carry around their ID badge in high school. I'm going to mm. get it laminated and put it around my neck with a lanyard. It's been getting so bad with these shows. man. I had to do a comedy show over the telephone the other day. I had to click over and tell my mom, I'm going to call you back. It's like 100 people on the other line. And then I clicked over. And then she was like, no, three-way we in. I was like, nah, click, click. And then it worked. And I was like, yo, my mom ain't here now, y'all. So, like, it's getting crazy, man. I saw, like, it's so bad. The people that you, like, people that are, like, like Baltimore royalty. Like, I saw Ray Lewis in ShopRite the other day. <laughs> he walked right out of ShopRite, signed the autograph, and drove the mobility bus. Like, he works for, <laughs> he picked up somebody. My name's Ivan Martin, man. Can't wait for y'all to listen to the podcast, man. Thank you for having me. No pics after dark. See you soon. And check out the Baltimore Comedy Festival documentary. Love you, Baltimore. Ivan, thank you so much, Mr. Ivan Martin. Ivan Minute, And uh, you'll be on the show every week. Every week you'll hear the Ivan Minute. And uh, folks, give us a, it's a quick break. We'll be right back. Visit your neighborhood sanctuary and do wellness for a luxurious experience for everybody. Treat yourself and a loved one with a massage, facial, for an entire day of pampering with our deluxe spa day packages that include lunch from the restaurant next door, fire and rice. For more information on booking or purchasing gift cards, visit their website at endowellness.com or call at 443-438-4048. They look forward to welcoming you and your loved ones to their beautiful new space at Soha Union, located at 4801 Harbor Road, Suite 1. And we're back on the new Picks of the Dark podcast. Again, I'm your host, Aaron Dante. And now we're back on for a new segment. And I'm so happy to have Ms. Natasha Axelrod, lawyer and legal expert, on the show today. How are you doing today? I am doing fantastic, Aaron. How are you? I am so happy that we have you on the show. Uh, this is the part we're going to have. It's going to be called the Natasha's Minute. I'm so excited for you to, to you know, give people a little, give them some knowledge, you know, knowledge. Is that, that's the correct word, correct? Yeah, legal legal information, legal knowledge. All right, all right. So how are you doing out in California before we even start? How's California? 
California's struggling right now. You know, I'm hoping I've been staying home. Um, I'm hoping some others follow suit and we, we get through this uh, sooner rather than later. Nice, nice. So without further ado, Natasha's minute. All right, Aaron, you know, I think something that really is a misconception is that, you know, we talk about Miranda rights. People are generally familiar with Miranda rights. This comes up in a criminal context in terms of you've been arrested and officer reads you your rights. Part of that is, you know, the right to remain silent and the, anything you do or say can be used against you. Anything you say can be used against you in a court of law. Now, we think about this in the context of criminal cases, and it's absolutely important, but this concept of anything you say can be used against you really applies on a broader basis in a legal context. And what I'm talking about here is civil litigation. If you have a car accident and you want to sue someone because you claim they were negligent, you're at the scene of the accident. What you're telling the police officer who's writing a traffic collision report, it matters what you say. It matters what you say then. It matters what you say to insurance companies. It matters what you say to other people. Social media. This is a big one because the first thing a defense attorney is going to do or an insurance company, even before you've made a claim maybe, is go on your social media profiles and figure out what you've said. And people, more often than not, like to post about what's happened to them, particularly a traumatic event. And so it's just, it's, I've been a plaintiff attorney where I've represented people who are suing. I've been a defense attorney where I've represented people who are being sued. And I can tell you that the social media is what is used against you in a case often more than anything. Wow. Uh, that, that's, that's some knowledge you just dropped in a minute. That is crazy. I'm, I'm glad that you can drop this knowledge and I'm so excited that you'll be a part of the show this whole season Every Monday, coming in the stereo, if you're listening to your car, working out, Miss Natasha Alcaraz, lawyer, legal expert, so much. Thank you so much for giving us those gems and jewels today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. I'm looking forward to this season. Miss Natasha, where can we find you on social media for more information? Yeah, back to that social media. We're all on it. Um, I am too. You can find me at Natasha Axelrod Official. Uh, it's Natasha underscore Axelrod underscore official on Instagram, as well as at Natasha Axelrod on Twitter. Thank you so much. And uh, folks, we'll be right back after these messages. The No Picks After Dark podcast is proudly sponsored by Maggie's Farm. Located at 4341 Hartford Road, Maggie's Farm offers a unique dining experience with delicious handcrafted cocktails and mouth-awarding cuisine from falafel to scallops and everyone's favorite honey sriracha cauliflower wings. Open for dinner from 4 p.m. until 10 p.m. Wednesday through Saturday and serving brunch Saturday 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. and Sunday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. with delectable chicken and waffles, shrimp and grits, biscuits and gravy, and more. Check out Maggie's Farm on Instagram and Facebook for daily and weekly food specials as well. Welcome, folks, back to the No Picks After Dark podcast. Again, I'm your host, Aaron Dante. Uh, for the main event today, we uh, have we are actually located in Full Tilt Brewing, and it's a really, really beautiful place. Very great craft beer, and I'm so excited to be here, you know, recording this for the season premiere. And it's it's really a pleasant experience. And a shout out to the owners of the establishment; they've been really great with having us here. And again, shout out to them. But without further ado. The main person that we're here for today, for our season premiere on No Picture of Dark podcast, 
This guy is probably one of the hardest guys to catch up with. Um, <laughs> I am so honored to have him on the show. And uh, it's one of those things where, you know, I always talk about community. And that's what I'm all about. Baltimore's community. Positive stories. And without further ado, the Baltimore City Comptroller, Mr. Bill Henry. How are you doing today, sir? <laughs> I am well, thank you. That's, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great introduction. Thank you. <laughs> hey, no problem. No problem, sir. I, I really just very excited to have you on the show. You know, I'm glad we can make this happen. Uh, it was one of those things where um, Casey, who's a communication director for you, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, reached out and I, I and I was like, this has to be a joke. Somebody's playing, you know, a joke on me. And she was like, you know, we really dig your show. We really like what you're doing. And we want to have, you know, Bill one. And I said, the controller, that guy. Why was it? Why do you want to talk to to this me, a podcaster? You know. And um, it was really, I really again appreciate you taking time out your day to sit down with us and just talk about what's going on in Baltimore, about you and whatnot. So again, I have the. Controller of Baltimore City, Mr. Bill Henry, here on the No Picks After Dark show. So, Mr. Bill, tell, tell the audience a little bit about you. So let's, let's get about your background first. Let's learn about who you are before we get into the nitty gritty. Well, sure. Um, I, I used to joke that I was born in a log row house, but that one didn't go over so well. So um, I'll, I'll just stick with the, um, the the less varnished truth and say I'm from Baltimore. I've been here my whole life. Uh, there was a month in, the, in July of 1985. I spent four weeks uh, outside Chicago at a, a summer program for uh, high school students who were interested in business. And those four weeks in Evanston, Illinois are the longest I've ever been outside of Baltimore in a row. Uh, born here, raised here, went to school here. Um, in fact, most of the schooling I, uh, I've done has been on Charles Street. Uh, right here where we are at a Full Tilt, we're right up the street from the old St. Mary's Govins Parish School, which is uh, where my sister and I went to grade school and middle school, and is the only school I've gone to that wasn't on Charles Street. Um, but uh, I've, I've been here the whole time. I, after uh, college, I started uh, working in city government and then in local nonprofits. And um, really, I've just spent my whole life enjoying Baltimore and uh, working with and for people who are trying to make it better. So what was your greatest memory growing up in Baltimore? Like were you a, like were you like a Colts fan? Were you a <laughs> Orioles fan? Like when I was growing up, it was Eddie, Eddie, Eddie <laughs> at Old Memorial Stadium. That that was that, you know I'll get my peanuts on the on the side side streets and go to Memorial Stadium. Were you a Colts fan? Were you a sports fan growing up in Baltimore? So I wasn't a big sports fan growing up, and I don't know how much of it was because when when I was little, um, like and when I'm saying little, I'm like two to seven. Uh, we lived right in uh, Ender Gardens Lakeside, walking distance from Memorial Stadium. And I think that uh, my, my parents were a little traumatized by the experience. 
<laughs> in terms of um, you know the impact of all the fans parking nearby in the neighborhood for the games. And so I only remember going to one game with my with my dad and my my little sister when uh, when we were kids, and we. Let, we we went there. We ordered hot dogs and popcorn and soda, and uh, we were done like within half an hour. <laughs> and I think my dad was frustrated, um, and that we had that we ended up leaving the game uh, before it was even half over because you know we we'd eaten and drunk our fill, and we were bored and wanted to leave. And uh, but that's uh, when I, when I think of the the good memories of my my childhood, they're they're more up here in the Govins area. Um, I I all but grew up in the Govins Library, another two blocks up the street, and uh, we we put on plays there. Uh, you know, the, one of the librarians uh, staged shows. Um, uh, friends of mine, we played board games on the weekends um, and after school. A uh, little bit of role playing uh, towards uh, towards the end in middle school and high school. Um, I, I remember Baltimore, especially the the Govins area, as a fun place to grow up. So, to give our listeners, because we have some listeners that are not from the Baltimore area. Give him an explain, explanation of the Govins area. What is, like, where is that located? If I was an out-of-towner coming from out-of-town, what's the landmarks that you could tell me of, if somebody wants to come visit when they come from out-of-town? So um, oh, that's, a, that's a good one. I, I guess uh, on, a, on a very technical basis, uh, Govins goes down to, I mean, basically what I think of as uh, the starting point for York Road, Green Mountain Avenue becomes York Road at uh, 42nd Street. And that, to me, is kind of the starting point of Govins. And then Govins comes all the way up north to really uh, Belvedere. Um, yeah, the, if, you're, if, you're, if you're kind of familiar with North Baltimore, but not very, um, you know, Belvedere Square and the Senator Theater are kind of at the north end of Govins. And, uh, you know, the easiest thing to, to tell in terms of landmarks is when you're heading south, once you cross 39th Street, you're definitely not in Govins anymore. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. So... Let's 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 speed it up a little bit. We can go to high school, you know, college. Were you in like I mean I don't know we're model UN nations. Were you ever in the debate <laughs> team? You know those type. We're not always talking to people who are in politics. Was there always a, was there a path? Did you want to be a lawyer growing up? I mean, was there something? Was there something that propelled you in high school that was ingrained in your brain at that time or college? So so my path to uh, my path into politics uh, was uh, is. I, I I think of it as pretty straightforward. My my dad, well, you gotta you have to understand my parents. Um, like my 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 dad was um, very involved in the civil rights movement back in the '60s, and he was part of a group of folks uh, in East Baltimore who 
transitioned their activism in, in, in civil rights into trying to reform the system from within. And essentially, they tried to take over government using politics, using uh, electoral activities. And my dad ran for the state legislature in 1996 as part of a, a big ticket of, of other activists. And, <laughs> and he was the only person on the ticket who didn't win. And, and but that's that 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 was okay in that what he what he learned that that summer was because because elections used to be in the fall the primaries used to be in September um, what he learned was that he hated being a candidate but he loved campaigns and so he went on to spend the next 30 or so years running other people's campaigns and so my sister and I we grew up in a household where uh, city council people uh, delegates state senators these were my dad's friends and business associates and you know they were always dropping by the house for this or that or my dad was going to meetings with them and so I grew up in a, in a household where being a city council person was just another thing you could do. Like you could be a doctor or you could be a lawyer or you could be an engineer or you could be a council person. And it was, it, you know, I, I have come to realize that a lot of people grow up um, with a with a with a very different approach towards elected officials if they don't you know if they don't grow up knowing any um they you know elected officials are more like celebrities you know they're just people you see on tv or in the news or in the paper and they're like movie stars and <laughs> you know like i i grew up knowing that they're just you know, normal people who, you know, stumble when they catch their foot on a step coming into your house um, or, you know, put the, you know, put the glass down wrong and, and spill something. Like, it's just, uh, it's, it's just another thing to be. And um, what I came to find as I went to high school and then got into college and um, was studying uh, political science and urban policy in college is that I, I realized this is something that I think I can do. You know, this, it, it, I, my mom was very big about making the world a better place. You know, that was one of the things she impressed upon us as we were growing, growing up. You, know, you, you, you need to make the world a better place. My dad um, was also of that mindset, but he was focused more um, immediate and locally. He's like, make the world a better place, but start with the area right around you where your house is. You know, you take care of your family, your neighbors. And, um, you know, when you combine those two, uh, you, uh, you, you get a strong motivation uh, to make this place better. And for me, um, for all of my life that I can remember, this place is, is Baltimore City. I like that. I like that a lot. Thank you for, thank you for explaining all that. I really appreciate that. <laughs> so, all right. So you, you grew up around politics. You were around politicians. 
So what was your first um, job out of college? When you did you jump right into it right away, or was it something like you just you were you just you were, I mean you you were around it all the time? Did you want to do it, did you, or did you rebel against it because you saw so much of it? Um, it no, the reason I'm laughing is because uh, <laughs> when you say my first job out of college, uh, when when I was uh, when I was in college, I. Uh, got a a burr under my saddle what is it what's the expression and um i ran for uh the state legislature when i was 21 oh, wow. when i was still in college and by the time the campaign uh was over and i had lost um the next semester had started <laughs> wow, that's uh, so i ended up taking a year off and um I had to go work full time, and I uh, I ended up working for Ben Cardin as a staff assistant here in his district office, and um, and then that summer, before I went back to to, to school, um, that summer I volunteered for Mary Pat Clark when she was running for re-election to the city council presidency. And at the end of the election, she, um, she hired me to be her legislative aide at City Hall. So that, but, but that job, <laughs> that job was contingent on me graduating from college. <laughs> she said, wow. she said, said, this is like, I, you can start now, but the deal is you have to finish next semester and be done so that you can really concentrate fully on, um, on the job. And so that second semester, uh, of 1992, so spring of 1992, um, I was carrying 15 credits and um, working full time for Mary Pat as her legislative aide. And when we hit budget season uh, in the spring, and I was working like 50, 60 hours a week for my day job, I actually went into her office and asked her to fire me so I could collect unemployment for a couple weeks. It's like just let me just fire me, uh, like let me collect unemployment, and I'll I'll finish my exams, and then you know I'll come back and I'll come back to work in the summer. And she just looked at me for a few seconds, and then she said, "You're still here." And I was like, what? "She's like, this is ridiculous. Go back to your go back to your office and go to work. You can do this." And that was it. We didn't talk about it anymore. I just gritted my teeth and did it. And for the next two decades, whenever anybody asked me, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? <laughs> well, that, see, was, that was usually my answer. <laughs> well, and you know, that, that's interesting to hear that story. That's amazing that she, she knew, she saw something in you to know that, you know what, you're talking crazy. You're talking gibberish. You, she knew that you could do it. Yeah. And sometimes in life we need people just to push us. And that and that is that is important. There there and I've and I've tried to pay that lesson forward and and identify when um when somebody around me is having a hard time there are times when you 
you know, you, you, you lean in and you help shoulder the burden for someone who's having a hard time. And then there are times where the best thing you can do for them is just tell them the burden isn't too big for you. You can do it. I like that. I like that. Folks, give us, we're gonna give, we'll be right back after 30 seconds after this real quick break. The No Picks After Dark podcast is fueled by Zeke's Coffee. Have you tried their coffee yet? I'm telling you, there is something different about it. Maybe it's because they roast their beans in a fluid coffee roaster, which provides the most accurate roasting temperatures and made with love. You will just have to check it out for yourself and try their delicious food while you're at it. Open now for curbside service, carryout, and delivery, and they also do wholesale. Visit Zeke's Coffee at 4719 Harper Road, open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 6 p.m., and Sunday, 8 to 5 p.m. Kitchen closes at 3 p.m., or visit Zeke'sCoffee.com, and you too can be fueled by Zeke's. All right, folks, we are back um, with the second part of the interview with Calumpet Controller, Bill Henry. So we left off with you and Mary Platt Clark, and you're working with her. So what, you, you, you've already run for state legislator. You, you're, you're ahead of the curve already, in my eyes. What, what was your next move in politics? What happens next? What happens next? Well, what happened next is um, Mary Pat ran for mayor in 1995, and uh, she was not successful, but her successor as council president was a guy named Lawrence Bell, who uh, had been a council person for the 4th District and whom um, my father had been an advisor to. And so the summer of 1995, mostly I'm working on Mary Pat's mayoral campaign, but um, my father and I were also helping Lawrence with his campaign for council president. And when he won, uh, he asked me to be his chief of staff. And so I was the chief of staff for the city council for a couple years. And then in early 98, uh, Joan Carter Conway, who at that time was one of the council people up here in, 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 in this part of the city, in my district, um, she got appointed to the uh, state senate. And there had been legislation passed um, in the previous uh, General Assembly creating a special election process for vacant city council seats. And so I stepped down as uh, Lawrence's chief of staff to run in the special election for the city council seat that Joan had vacated. But then after I, um, after I had resigned and started putting together my campaign, the attorney general uh, issued an opinion that the special election law didn't apply to Baltimore City. And so we would just be appointing a new uh, city council person uh, just, you know, like, like, well, like we still do um, today. And so I found myself trying to decide what I was going to do next. And what I ended up doing was I ended up uh, consulting for the next year and a half. 
and uh, my last consulting gig was with an organization um, doing community development in southeast Baltimore called the Patterson Park Community Development Corporation. And uh, I ended up working with them, for them, for eight years. And I learned a lot about the mechanics of really um, improving a neighborhood. If you're trying to, if you're trying to revitalize an entire area, I learned how you do that from a community development perspective. And uh, when eight years later, we had a, um, we now had these new single member districts. Uh, for city council and uh, I had run the first time we had one and come in second to the incumbent, uh, a guy named Ken Harris. And then in 2007, Ken Harris said that he was going to run for council president and there was going to be an open seat. And nine of us ran and I won. And I have been the council person here in the fourth district for almost 13 years now. So here's a million dollar question. I always tell people, I always ask people this question. What, since you've been council, city council for this district, what trials and tribulations have you gone through that most people probably wouldn't even known that you had to just put out something at fire or a constituent just, what constituents weren't happy about certain things in their neighborhood. Is there anything out there that you can think of? Um, it, it, it's not so much is there anything out there that I can think of. It's literally swimming through the ocean of things <laughs> that fall into that category. Um, there is uh, so much. Uh, um, there are so many amazing things about being a city council person. Some of it is really in inspiring when you get to uh, vote for a law that's going to do something really great for people or, or even even better sometimes when you come up with a law uh, that's going to be, make things better and you get it passed um, sometimes it's 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 more it's more tangible when you're able to help a constituent with a problem and really directly and substantially improve their quality of life because of the connections you were able to make. Um, but the, the flip side of that is um, the number of stories that you hear of people who have problems or have had bad things done to them um, and who are in pain or suffering who have been, um, you know, knocked down. And the problem that they have is not one that you as a council person can address. I'm, I'm pretty confident saying that is the worst part. I mean, for, I mean, definitely for me, the worst part of being a city council person has been um, the people that I haven't been able to help, um, either because their problems were just not ones that the city could deal with, or um, you know, even more painfully, when they are problems that the city should have been able to deal with, but 
um, as a council person, I didn't have the the oomph to force the city to do what it what I feel it should have done. Would give me um, a bill that you might have wrote, written or co-sponsored that you're very proud of. <laughs> so yeah, I I, was, I I I've been thinking a lot about that lately. You know, I've I've I've, I've hit this sort of what is your legacy right. um, point in the in, in my councilmanic career. Right. Um, I I probably am most proud of a, a law that most people don't know about, which is. Uh, it's called the Late Night Commercial Operations Licensure Program. And uh, it, what it does is it requires businesses that are operating uh, near residential neighborhoods to have certain hours of operation. Um, before, before this program was created, there were literally no rules in Baltimore City um, governing when a business could be open or not, um, you know there were there were liquor licenses that are issued by the state that have a statewide closing time. You know bars can't be open past two o'clock, um, or most bars can't be open past two o'clock. Some have to close earlier, but other than other than that, there was nothing regulating when a carryout or a convenience store that might be located right up against or alongside uh, a residential block, there was nothing keeping it from being open all day and all night. And um, sometimes the, uh, the patrons of those businesses were, um, were very disturbing to the people who were trying to sleep uh, in 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 the in the neighborhood adjacent, and there was simply no regulation of that. And um, now there is a law in the books that requires businesses that want to be open later than midnight or earlier than 5 a.m. They have to come to the city and get a license. And if they're doing a fine job of, you know making certain that their business doesn't have a negative impact on their neighbors, then that's a simple thing. They just, they apply for the license, they get it. But if that is a problem business, now the neighbors have a, a way to reach out to government and protest that license and bring the business to the table and, um, and work out something to ensure that they're able to run their business in a way that doesn't negatively impact their neighbors. And it's, you know, it's nothing that, uh, you know, a national news magazine is ever going to write a story on, but I appreciate the fact that it, um, it's, it's about community empowerment and that kind of, uh, that's kind of the cornerstone that a lot of my legislation has been based on and a lot of my um, attitude and approach has been based on uh, as the council person for the district i believe that um, people who live in a neighborhood should have a say in determining the the, the quality and the 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 way that that neighborhood looks and acts and that goes to what land uses happen there and nearby. 
and um, you know I I think that it's a very you know small d democratic concept and um, and one that I, I think we should be taking seriously at City Hall. Thank you so much. Uh, again, I want to give a shout out again to Full Tilt Brewing for having us here. I really appreciate it. We are live in the Brewing Hall. It's a beautiful place to come check out, folks. I mean, again, thank you so much for having us here for this live broadcast. I want to give you a quick shout out. <laughs> All right. So we're going to go into COVID real quick. We're in a business right now. We're in a business that's in your district. What have you? What have you been hearing from your constituents, your businesses, and saying we need help? It's, and going into this winter right now, this is going to be a brutal winter. What are we going to do for these businesses? I mean, just you, not yourself, but saying just city council, what you guys have been talking about, things of that nature at, at that time when everything's coming up. Yeah, this is um, this is going to be brutal. It to some extent, it has been brutal. Um, you know, this is this has been an incredibly challenging time uh, for for most businesses. Uh, some some have been harder hit uh, than others, uh, but it's it's been a tough time for for everybody. Um, what what winter is going to look like? Um, as far as I can, you know, if I'm going to predict, I'm going to say what winter is going to look like in terms of the impact on businesses is going to depend heavily on what happens in Washington, um, far more so than the individual decisions that are going to get made uh, here in Baltimore City about Baltimore City alone. Uh, Baltimore City, uh, even to that extent, you know, the state of Maryland, we have comparatively limited resources in terms of how we stimulate the economy and um, how we protect both um, businesses and um, residents from the the negative uh, impact of the the pandemic and the associated lockdowns or restrictions. Um, the federal government is the the level of organization in this country that doesn't have to balance its budget every year and really is in a position to help inject the level of extra money into the economy that we need to, to provide the, um, the, the real um, assistance programs, both for businesses and for um, you know, individual residents, to make sure that the people who are struggling because of, of COVID are able to make it through this period and um, you know into that that new normal that we'll be living with afterwards when you know when there's a vaccine and we can start to um, reduce social distancing restrictions. God. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So let's get into Comptroller. Okay. <laughs> All right. This is why we're here. I just wanted to get everybody a quick background, everything what you've done, and celebrate your achievements. You know, so we want to celebrate you. Well, thank you. So, Comptroller, so I'm going to tell you something. We, you and I spoke previously, and I was joking around with you. I said, Comptroller, what, what does a Comptroller do? I don't know. <laughs> does it balance the checkbook? Does it, what does it do? And and the only reason why I was being half-jokingly with you about that was because the person who had been there has been there for over 22 decades. Hmm. Folks, two decades ago, I was in college. <laughs> I am 40 now. That's a long time, folks. That's a long, that's a long, that's a long time for somebody to be in one position of power 
that long, in my personal opinion, okay? Um, things need to change. Things need to move forward. We need, we need I think, fresh ideas. That's how I think, you know. That's just my personal opinion. But two decades is a long time. It is. What made you want to run against somebody that's like a, the, like a powerhouse who's been like, as we call it, as they call it in Baltimore, the Baltimore establishment <laughs> um, for 20 some odd years? What made you think, you know, I mean, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm afraid to lose, okay? You know, I, I'm, I, you know, I always want to win. What made you jump out and say, you know what, I think I can do it? So, so let me tell you that, that feeling of being afraid to lose. Um, that that, that you, you may not realize it, but that's a, that's a that's a really important thing to to keep in mind and to be aware of, and um, it's one of the things that I look for uh, in people who run for office for the first time. Uh, if they lose the first time they run, you can tell right away when you when you talk to them afterwards if they're ever going to run again or not, um, and. Um, and most people, I actually, I, I don't know if, I don't know if anyone's done a study on this, but I will say anecdotally, I think most people who do run for office, um, if they lose, they don't run again, and it's because um, losing is really hard for most people. Most people don't like to lose, um, and. I mean, I don't like to lose, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it's a it, it, it. There's a certain kind of individual that has a higher tolerance to the for the pain of losing. I guess maybe that's the you know, I have a high tolerance for the pain of losing. I have, I I think I have a winning record overall right now. Like I think I've won more elections than I've lost, but I'm not sure. Um, and, you know, there are some people out there who they've never lost an election. Uh, you know, uh, there there were people who who speculated that one of the reasons why Stephanie didn't run for re-election in 2016 was she'd never lost and she didn't want to, you know, risk actually losing. Um, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't worry about that. I worry about um, is the person in office doing a better job than I could do. If if the answer to that question is not yes, then I'm going to look at that race. And um, in in this case, <laughs> uh, in in the in the fall of 2018. Um, I had three people come up to me in the course of two weeks saying, I hear you're running for controller. And I, I said the same thing back to all three of them. I said, I am? You know, where are you hearing that? Because <laughs> I had no idea what they were talking about. And I, and I traced it back to a grad student on Facebook who'd done a thought experiment. You know, and he was just speculating of who would be good people to run for different citywide posts. And um, you know, I met with him, and I and I thanked him. I told him I was very flattered, but I hadn't even you know I hadn't even considered running for comptroller. And then a couple weeks after that, I got a phone call. Um, a guy named Ben Smith, who at the time was the chair of the Democratic State Central Committee for the city, and um, he wanted to have coffee. And when we had coffee, he said, "You should think about it." Um, he said, "I've I've looked at your background. I think you'd be a good." 
controller and um, and I've done a little bit of number crunching and I don't think that uh, the race would be as hard as you might think it would be and um, you know I'm 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 a I'm a believer in math and science so I, I said well show me what you're talking about and and we talked further and I said well let me think about it for a little bit and um, and then later that fall uh, there's a there's an, an entity called the Biennial Audits Oversight Commission, which is exactly as exciting as it sounds. And it, um, I had been appointed to it by the now outgoing mayor when he was council president, uh, probably because he thought it only meets twice a year. So how much trouble can I get into? And um, and during the the commission hearing, uh, it it came it came out that there had been a series of audits that were all done in August and September of that year, but uh, the controller had um, agreed to the complaints of the mayor's director of finance that there were issues with these audits um, and the, the issue being that they had critical findings <laughs> of several of the departments. Um, and the, the director of finance asked that they be held for additional review. And the city auditor said, that's not how audits work. You know, I've completed the audit. It says what it says. You're allowed to respond to it but um, there is really no point in holding it for additional review because it's not going to change. Um, it should just go to the Board of Estimates and be released to the public. But for whatever reason, the comptroller decided to agree with the director. And so instead of releasing these audits, um, you know, one, two at a time over a span of weeks, they ended up dumping the whole stack of them on the Board of Estimates uh, two weeks before Christmas. Um, coincidentally, when the reporter for The Sun who covered such things was out on paternity leave. And, um, and this is important for, for a very key reason. Now, two years later, everybody knows that the um, comptroller and the, at the mayor at the time, Catherine Pugh, were business partners. You know, everybody knows that now. Um, but at the time, that wasn't well known. You know, it had been mentioned in the 2016 campaign, but it hadn't really made an impact. And so most people didn't realize that they were actually business partners. And I, I sat there in the council chambers listening to this thinking, you know, if I was the controller and my business partner was going to benefit from me holding up a bunch of audits, um, that would be like the, the, a very key reason not to do it. But I mean, like I would want to do everything I could to avoid that kind of appearance of collusion. And, um, but apparently the controller didn't feel that way. Like she felt so comfortable that she was okay with just openly holding up audits the only benefit of which was to avoid a, a, a series of bad PR hits 
for her friend and, and business partner. And I thought, that's really not how the job is supposed to work. And so that kind of crystallized my decision. It's like, the city deserves better. You know, we deserve somebody who's going to take the watchdog role of that job seriously. Um, and uh, if there is if there is something that I, I believe I'm well known for in and around City Hall, it's my independence. You know, I have um, I have allies in city government. I have people that I you know largely agree with uh, philosophically. But uh, one thing I can say um, very easily is that nobody tells me what to do. Um, and I, I think it's important that that type of attitude um, be there underneath, that's the core of the watchdog, to make sure that the, the things that the mayor and the mayor's agencies are doing are um, being properly publicized uh, so that the people of Baltimore can be making informed decisions. So at that point, you, you, I think you kind of knew what you want to do. You talked to the people who, who wanted you to run. You, you, the race happens this year, this past year. I mean, during this year, actually. Mm -hmm. And how did you feel going up to it like that that night when the land was the primaries? Like, what was your thoughts going that night? How did you, like, take us through like, your thought process when numbers are starting to come out. What are you thinking? So, <laughs> so you, 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 you never want to ask a candidate, what are you thinking that night? Because uh, uh, 99 times out of 100, if the candidate is going to be brutally honest with you, what they're thinking is, man, I just want this to be over. I don't even care anymore if I win. I just want it to be over. Because, um, you know, what, I, what I, we talked about earlier in terms of, um, you know, what the hardest thing I've ever done in my life was, uh, I, 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 don't give, I don't give the uh, 15 credits while working for Mary Pat as the answer anymore. A year and a half long citywide campaign is the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, and it, 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 it really was good on election night for it just to be over. Um, but I, I was feeling confident based on the internal polling that we had been doing. Um, in, in, in some ways, while the, um, while the pandemic was a blow to our campaign plan in terms of we had ex intended to do a lot of door-to-door um, -door campaigning um, to keep expenses down. We ran a very grassroots campaign. Um, and we lost the ability to do door-to-door -door campaigning in mid-March. But what we got in return was we got an extension of the of the race that the primary was pushed back from late April to early June um, we got an extension to the race and we got um, people stuck at home and so what we ended up doing was we transformed our field campaign from door knocking to phone banking and people were home and bored 
and more likely to answer the phone and talk to somebody than they probably would have been during a normal campaign. And, um, and we were able to use the phone banking apparatus that we set up to periodically stop with the getting my message out kind of phone calls and do a couple just sort of objective check-ins to see how is the message working. And, um, and it, it, was, it was pretty clear uh, by, by early June, it was pretty clear that the message had worked that um, you know since at that point almost a year we we kicked off the campaign publicly in June of um, 2019 and the message that we were you know bringing to doors all over the city was if more people knew how their money was being spent I think we'd spend it better you know, it's it's a ten, you know it's it's a simple, straightforward message. It's not partisan. You know, it's it's you know it's not a Republican message or a Democratic message. It's not a progressive message or a conservative message. It's one that resonates for everybody. Everybody wants city government to work as effectively and efficiently as possible, and nobody thinks it works more effectively and more efficiently if the people don't know what's going on. All right, that, that pretty much actually, I was gonna ask my next, going to my next question actually. Again, um, your first order of business when you get in there, um, what, what's the first thing that you really wanna tackle? I, I know there's a lot of things going on. You'll be busy, you're a busy person, but what, what's, what's the one that, did you, I mean, just give us one goal. Just one goal you did try and tackle with first walk in. So there were a couple things that we knew we wanted to do right away. Um, that the transition team had started identifying for us uh, back in September and October. Uh, we wanted to uh, make certain that all of the uh, controllers, staff who work on Board of Estimates agenda formulation and, um, and other workflow processes right there around the controller, we wanted to get them uh, take-home laptops so that they could be working remotely from home like most other city employees. Um, we wanted to, and that that was all part of trying to um, finish making that process more electronic, you know, more based in IT. And, and the goal there is to get as much information as possible online uh, right you know before before this term for the last well I mean really forever the board of estimates agenda uh, has has largely been a paper work process and the result of that is there was all this paper there still is a lot of paper in folders um, and files in City Hall and um, a lot of that information was only on paper and only in files, uh, which means that it's not available for the city's open data. And um, if you are somebody who's interested in getting that information, um, you're really talking about requesting hard copies of it from the city, which um, is not 
um, does not really lend itself to doing any type of um, you know easy analysis or, um, uh, or trying to track um, money or expenditures or vendors or anything like that. And so the first thing we wanted to do is we wanted to start getting as much of that um, electronic as possible. The long-term goal is to have that process be uh, fully virtual, fully online, uh, where agencies are inputting their spending requests uh, into uh, a, um, a web form right there in, uh, you know, at, at their desktops. And then that information is populating a searchable database. Um, there's an outward facing portal for it so that people at home, um, journalists, anybody anywhere can um, be searching through that database looking for information. Uh, the, the other example I can give is uh, back in November, uh, a friend of mine reached out to complain that the Board of Estimates had approved a contract and he couldn't get a copy of it and he was asking for help getting a copy of it. And you know, I said, um, that is exactly what I'm planning on fixing because you know, the Board of Estimates every year approves about a half a billion dollars worth of spending. You know, that's a lot of taxpayer money. And we shouldn't be approving commitments and, and approving contracts that aren't themselves available to the people of Baltimore to review. Um, we should not be committing city funds to, um, to projects that the, the people of Baltimore City don't have the ability to even just read for themselves. Um, and so that's, that's really been what we've focused on um, first in the first couple of weeks is how can we get that process made um, you know, more open and more transparent. Yeah, it, sound, it sounds like to me transparency is a big thing. Transparency is huge. I mean, the, the, I'm, I'm trying to remember the, the quote. It's, uh, you know, democracy is an awful form of government. Its only advantage is that it's better than everything else that's been tried. And, um, but people either forget or sometimes, you know, maybe they don't realize that uh, all the advantages of democracy presume that the voters know what they're voting on. You know, it presumes that people are informed and are making informed decisions when they're choosing their leaders. And, um, and I really believe that it's the responsibility uh, and the power of the controller to share as much information about the city's financial decisions as possible so that um, when the, the people of Baltimore are making decisions, they're, they're making them knowing what the leaders they have already have done. Thank you so much. And then we're going to skip to rapid fire. Uh, we're going to skip to rapid fire. This is the, you're off the hot seat, controller Bill Henry. You're off the hot seat, okay? As I saw he's over here sweating right now, folks. So I, just, I had to get a couple glasses of water for him real quick. But uh, I, again, I appreciate you coming on the show. And um, like I said, we've talked, we've spoken. Hopefully, what I, and I, what I want to do, and I, you know, I've spoken to Casey a little bit about it, is just 
maybe quarterly we can have a sit down talk just about things that you are learning through the process of being a controller and just giving transparency like you sure. said and just like I said I'm doing that with a couple other council people right now just because people want to more be, be informed and educated and sometimes we get nervous because it's like well we're always on we, we tell things on Twitter we tell things on Facebook but my parents don't look at that <laughs> my neighbors don't listen to that. My neighbors don't look at that. They, they, you know, they, they like to listen and hear the person that they voted in. They want to hear, you know, you know, everything's on WJZ <laughs> or WBAL, but they want to hear. So, I just, like I said, I, I really appreciate you coming in and just, you know, kicking off the season the right way and having you on. It's really, really been a blessing and an honor just to have you here. Well, really, truly, truly, sir. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. So, rapid fire. What inspires you every day, sir? Oh, uh, that's easy. That's my family. You know, I, they're why I get out of bed. All right. Sometimes literally. <laughs> What's your favorite TV show? Oh, um, so I don't, I don't know that I do favorites for categories as big as TV show. But if I had to, um, if I had to narrow it down based on uh, what shows I quote the most, it would probably be The West Wing. All right. Your favorite character from Star Trek? Okay, that's easier. I'm I'm, I'm a Captain Kirk fan. You uh, you never you never you never forget your first Starship Captain. Your favorite comic? X Men. Have you ever been to Comic Con? I have not been to a Comic Con. I I've been to a couple Balticons and Shore Leaves, but uh, I've 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 never been to a, a con outside the Baltimore area. If you were not in politics. What would be your occupation? Uh, so I actually, I think of community development as my occupation and politics is just a portal. Okay. Best crab cake in Baltimore. Oh, Coco's. <laughs> Best brunch in Baltimore. Uh, Saturday morning cafe down on Water Street. Okay. Flats or drums? <laughs> Tenders. Oh, chicken. Oh, okay, chicken tender. Okay, blue cheese or ranch? Blue cheese. All right. All right. We okay. Well, you made, you made up for that. All right. All right. <laughs> Favorite city to visit besides Baltimore? Ooh, again, that's tough. Um, if I'm visiting with family and friends, definitely NYC. Uh, a lot of a lot of stuff I like to do with groups of people. But if I'm wandering around the city by myself, because like I'm there for business. Seattle. Okay. Favorite local beer? So I'm a chocolate stout fan. Uh, so, um, and, and most of the local breweries don't do uh, a good chocolate stout all the time, like all year round. So I wait for Full Tilt to do the Cat's Pajamas or uh, Heavy Seas to do Siren Noir. Um, and then I stock up. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> What's the best advice you've ever received? Um... Be a teacher, you know. Like even if you're not a teacher, I think it was Tim mentioned. Uh, like even if you're not a teacher as your profession, share the information that you have. You know, help 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 teach people what you've learned. Favorite place to take visitors from out of town when they come to Baltimore? Probably the Senator Theater. You know, a lot of cities don't still have uh, a theater like that. And social media platforms, how can we get a hold of you or how can we email you? I mean, just, just you know, because, you know, people are like, oh, wait, maybe I have a question for the controller. I, you know, I mean, is there any way? Because I saw you were a new celebrity on TikTok. So, 
<laughs> so, so if social, if social media platforms were, were languages, I would say I speak Twitter. Uh, I have a reading knowledge of Instagram and TikTok, but I think in Facebook. And um, uh, I, I, like, I think, I mean, you can find me on, you can, you can find me on all of those. And Casey's going to kill me because I can't rattle off the handles. Um, but I, I suspect that if I ask nicely, you'll put links in the. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'll, I will get I'll, all the links. Will be in the. Uh, will be all in the details and whatnot. So we'll have all that up there for you. But the the, the reason I'm on all of those social media platforms um, and the reason I enjoy you know I've enjoyed doing this podcast, it's the same thing. I mean, you 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 mentioned that there are people out there who they don't. They don't use Facebook or they don't use TikTok. They want to hear what um, what people are thinking, what 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 the people in City Hall want to do, and you know, I think it's our responsibility as leaders to to go to where the people are to um, to communicate with them, to to tell them what we're doing and hear from them what they want. I'll tell you a little secret. Not everybody listens to the radio anymore. <laughs> not going to not throw any shade at any radio place, but I can tell you most of my friends don't listen to the radio. We, a lot of us just don't anymore. It's a, it's a interesting thing, but I just, a lot of them don't. We allow them to podcast now. So there's something to think about going down the road. It is. Media wise. I don't know. It's just a lot of things, a lot of radio stations are doing podcasts now, actually. So, again, thank you so much, Controller Bill Henry. Again, round of applause for him coming on the show. Again, thank you so much for coming in, and I can't wait to have you back on, sir. Thank you. All right, and that, folks, we're out. Love, peace, and happiness. Have a safe. Be safe. Beautiful.